The scripture this morning is from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up the, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Yuza and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yuza reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Yuza because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Yuza. And to this day, that place is called Perez Yuza. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the, the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and sat it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How, is the, king of How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord, 
I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Usually, I am not able to listen to every sermon that's ever been preached on the passage, but I listened to all three sermons that have ever been preached on this passage this week. It is a difficult passage, um, and the, the ark is the main point, the ark returning to Jerusalem. David longs to have it brought to the new capital city. Um, they have a worship parade and a procession into the city. Why? We'll, we'll see. And this parade is cut short when, when Uzzah is struck down after reaching out his hand to stabilize the ark. Why? We'll see this too. David, we could say, perhaps moves from a place of fear and maybe superstitious fear to a place of holy reliance on grace. That's halfway through the passage where, where he orders it to continue on its way to Jerusalem. He dances with abandon when it arrives in the city. This is the moment um, where, where we see his, his faith, that the faith of this man who is one after God's own heart, um, filled with, with faith. I mean, it's, it's not religious clamor this time. It is faith-filled fervor. Now, it's only a few pages in our Bible, but... From the last sermon um, that we've preached on David's life, until now, much has transpired. David is king, for one. He ascended to the throne two years after Saul and Jonathan are slain in battle. Saul reigned a total of 40 years, and Saul's son, Ish-bosheth, reigned two years after, uh, after Saul's death. Two years of direct conflict with David, divided armies until they formed an alliance that David would again be king or would be king of Judah. In his uh, many years of being pursued by Saul, actually David left Jerusalem and didn't end his marriage with Michal, but Saul had her married to someone else. And David, prior to coming back on the throne, wanted her back. He paid the full bridal price of 100 Philistine foreskins. And he wants her back. Um, David places that condition on his ascendancy to the throne, and so she is returned. He's 30 years old at the time, which, you know, is, is younger than I am. A lot has happened in his young life. And the Ark of the Covenant, which is returning to Jerusalem, it tells its own story. Um, before David was even on our radar, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Lord is calling out to Samuel when he's sleeping, sleeping in the tabernacle, and he says, where is the ark of the Lord? We see the Philistines captured the ark of the Lord and, and held it in their, in their possession for seven months. They initially set up the ark um, in one of their cultic places, um, next to one of their idols, Dagon, the father of Baal. And morning after morning, there's this, their statue, Dagon, fell prostrate before the ark, morning by morning. So the people moved the ark. 
And the Philistines brought it to city after city where there was an outbreak of tumors or deaths, and it was a scary thing. And so the Philistines wanted nothing more to do with it. And they returned it to Israel, as, as well as a number of Canaanite guilt offerings of golden rats and boils. They brought those things to the Israelite territory. Out of fear, the Philistines do not carry the ark the last time. They put it on a wooden, uh, they put the, 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 cart, the ark on a cart. I mean, wooden poles and all. It's on the cart, it's moving. They fasten the cart up and they bring it to an, an Israelite encampment. And it's left with um, the Levites in this city who are celebrating. They're all very excited. And, and 70 of them look inside just to make sure everything's there. And, and the Lord strikes them dead. And so the ark stays in the possession of Abinadab, um, who, who it, it, it appears is a Levite, for 20 years in the, in the house of Abinadab. 13 of those years are actually during Saul's reign. Seven of those years, David is king. Um, and we know during those 20 years, the ark is brought into battle at least once, as it was in the days of the conquest. So after David captures Jerusalem, so he was king in Hebron, he now makes Jerusalem the capital city, he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city. He wants to show the Israelites who their true king is. Abinadab's no longer alive at this point, but his two sons are, who were Levites. Um, which brings us up to speed with our passage. Our passage is all about the Ark. The Ark is the lens that we're going to look at as we, as we ask the question of what it means to be a person after God's own heart, as David was. So we're going to look at the ark as a lens into that question. After listening to a sermon this week by Tim Keller, I, I thought his structure and the message was, was really helpful. So I'm, I'm going to employ the structure he uses, or at least the first part of it. We're going to look at the need for the ark, why it was necessary, the problem of the ark, and the gospel according to the ark. So that's what we're going to talk about, the need for the ark, the problem of the ark of the Lord, and the gospel according to the ark of the Lord. So let's dive right into the need for the ark of the Lord. What was the ark? Most of us probably think about Indiana Jones when we think of the ark of the covenant, uh, since its whereabouts are unknown. According to Indiana Jones, which is where we all learn our history from, right? The Ark is one of many cultural, religious artifacts or relics lost in time. And it's hidden somewhere, maybe even guarded. And it holds some magic-like power that requires special knowledge and skill to successfully steal. And as Indiana Jones would say, put it in a museum where it belongs. According to the description um, of the Ark in, in Exodus 25, it's about as long as this table. Um, it's not quite as high as this table, but it's maybe about as, as wide as the table. Um, this is maybe a good image to hold in your mind. It's covered in gold, um, and it has a, um, four, four legs with holes fastened on each side. And we're, we read that there are two acacia uh, planks of wood that go through those holes attached to the legs, and that's for carrying it. Carrying it like you would imagine carrying um, some, some ancient deity uh, on, on a, a, a thing of, uh, of cushions risen up above the, the people so they could see them. That, that's kind of the, the 
way that the ark was designed to be carried. Um, ornamentally, that it's designed with two angels built of pure gold um, on top facing one another. According to Hebrews uh, 9.4, the, the ark contained three things. It contained a gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff, that same staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Um, maybe the Ten Commandments, maybe those, those or maybe, maybe it was, there, there was more. Um, the ark was significant for at least one reason. When we're talking about the need for the ark, this is how God promised to dwell among his people. Um, it was the seat of God's presence. It was how a holy and transcendent God fellowshipped with his people. And, it, and, and that fellowship was established in a veiled sort of way through a system of sacrificial laws. Um, similar to the, the, the Great Commission, right, where, where Christians are promised that Jesus will be with them till the very end of the age, that was the promise of the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, God tells Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me so I may dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the patterns I will show you. We know that the, the ark was constructed in the wilderness where they, the Israelites wandered for 40 years. It was built according to the exact specifications that God gave. Um, and what is significant about the ark is that um, it sat in the most sacred place of the, of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, it, the, in the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary, which most people were, were never permitted to enter. It was only entered once per year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, that day that God makes provision for the sins of the Israelites. We see uh, God's power manifest in the ark as, as they enter into Israel. So when they cross over the Jordan Sea, the, the ark enters into the water and the water stops. We see that they are commanded to, to carry the ark around Jericho seven times and shout and the, the walls of Jericho fall. The ark was brought into many battles, many of which were victorious, but the ark was not like a talisman to be used to advance the will of the people. Um, that's the, the Indiana Jones theory on the ark. Uh, actually, the ark was, was captured by the Philistines in a battle um, by the sons of Eli who were killed in that battle. The ark is not a disembodied representation of God's power, like the, the ring in Lord of the Rings or like the Elder Wand in Harry Potter. It's, it's not like that. God chose day after day to make his presence known through the ark. It's like a teaching lesson, a demonstration of his realness and his power, but in accordance with his will. So now fast forward to David. He wants to bring the house of God, the whole house of God, the, the tabernacle into the city of Israel. He wants to show that God is the true king of Israel. He wants to show the people that they are not to trust in military might. He was a, a mighty soldier after all, but their trust should be in the power of God, which made Israel into the, the unique nation that it was, a nation of priesthood to the other nations. Um, in parallel to this passage in Chronicles, we're, we're told that actually the song that they processed with when they were singing. They were singing, honor and majesty surround him, strength and joy fill his dwelling. 
Um, actually, those are very similar lyrics to the, the song we sang, Holy is the Lord. David rested in the promise of fellowship, the, the, the promise that we can know God. Um, he wanted the strength and the joy that comes from knowing God. Um, I mean, there is a difference between just being religious or being moral, being compliant with, with the, the religious social context of the church. There's a difference between that and, and really knowing God, really cherishing God, really loving God. I mean, that's the need for the ark, right? Being in the presence of God, knowing God, experiencing God. I mean, in that sense, we all need the ark. Um, but we also have the problem of the ark. I think many people have a difficulty with this passage. Um, it's one of the reasons I wonder whether people reject a, a the biblical view of God um, because of the terrors of the Old Testament. Um, it's the reason that Marcion in the early church concluded that Yahweh in the Old Testament had fundamental differences with the loving father of, of Jesus in the New Testament. I mean, when we read this, let's go to verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cisterns, sistrums, and cymbals. I mean, it's raucous, but it's well-meaning. I mean, this past Thursday, I, um, I got stuck at work in Salem um, by the participants of the, the Halloween parade. Has, has anyone gone to that? Is that something? Are, do people just get stuck in traffic like me? Okay. Um, but, but there were cars, there were floats, there were people that were all backing my car in and, and while they um, prepared the process. Uh, my car was stuck there for about two hours um, as they marched the streets of Salem. And, and during that time, I actually had to get a client out of the parking lot, like through the, the preparing marching band I mean, kids from the marching band were like bass drums, like boom, boom, boom. They, they were lining the streets, and I, I swear it was like youth group. Like they, they had that sort of energy. They were facing every which direction. Um, they had the trombones too. I mean, you can just imagine it. Like, like it was raucous. They, they were um, like dressed up. They had pirate costumes. There was a giant banana that had a big bass drum. And my voice in trying to get their attention it was about half the, half the volume of one of those bass drums. Um, and so <laughs> what I ended up doing to get the car out is I just kind of started backing up myself very slowly, pushing everyone out of the way. And, and it took about 15 minutes to get the car out of the, the, the lot. And for some reason, I can't get that picture out of my mind when I think about what this procession must have looked like with all those instruments, all that youth group energy. Um, bringing the ark back into the nation's capital. Um, that ark, which was brought uh, to the house of Abinadab on a cart, and, and it leaves, and it almost sounds like a, a, a good thing. They're proud of it. They put it on a new cart. Um, a cart driven by an ox has no driver, right? Uh, it's, so it's typical for people to walk alongside the ox. Maybe they'll have their hand on the ox. And, and Yuza does something that's very understandable. When the ox stumbles, he 
went to study, study the ark um, on the cart. And in that moment, he was struck down. So that word struck down is such a powerful word. It's the same word in Hebrew in the, the same form for, for clapping your hands. And I think that gives you a sense of how quick it happened, like how fast it was that Uzzah was struck down. It suggests instancy. Um, I mean, I couldn't have silenced that parade in Salem, but I think that what happened on this day to Uzzah would have silenced that band. All of a sudden, the band stops playing. I mean, you hear a scream and everyone starts to slowly step back. You hear murmuring and crying. Uzzah's brother slows the oxen and rushes over to his brother. I mean, it's horror. It's, it's, it's sad. Um, the first Im impression you get and, and people struggle with uh, so deeply is the impression that, that everyone was just trying their best here and it just wasn't good enough. It gives the impression of an angry and temperamental God where, where you know, being one after God's own heart just isn't good enough. I mean, how do you appease a God who gets fiddly about the rules and, and deals in out-of-proportion consequences? I mean, sure, they didn't read those few lines of the Torah that, that specified that, they should be, that the ark should be carried on acacia wood through those golden rings mounted uh, to its legs. But, but, I mean, first impressions is the pun punishment doesn't fit the crime. Isn't this juridical way of thinking about God the problem? Isn't that why so many people reject God? Isn't God a God of love? Isn't God who seeks people after his own heart? I mean, what does that even mean when you, when you hear something like this? I mean, this is a challenge for, for many people today, and I, and I hear you. I hear you. Um, if this is a confusing passage, that it's hard to reconcile this with the statement that God is love. But it is true, and, and that love cannot be, and I think this is one of the problems, is that love can't be divorced from the story at work in all of Scripture. God's saving work throughout all of Scripture. When we think of God as love, we have to think about the way he showed his love throughout Scripture in his saving work. I mean, the, 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 the message which Scripture tells us again and again in a hundred different ways is we are sinful, and our sin is irreconcilable with God's holiness. I mean, Uzzah's misunderstanding is that he was holy, he was clean, and able to approach God. The message of the ark of God is this. I mean, your sin is real. Your sin is serious. We confess it every week um, that we need to be cleansed and forgiven. Or more, more we, we rest in that reality every week that we are forgiven. The rules and laws of the Old Testament paint the picture. They teach the lesson. They underline and underline that we in our sin cannot approach a holy God. In fact, our sin has created separation from God that no amount of good deeds can mend. The Bible teaches us that God, all-powerful and all-good, he's not one that can simply overlook it, forgive it, write it off as immaturity or misunderstanding or just good intentions. I mean, we don't like to hear the message of the ark because it is something that makes us confront 
something deep down inside us, sin, our, ability, our inability to come before a holy God. I mean, one of the things... God, God, in his mysterious wisdom, uses this moment to teach the king of Israel the principles of fear and grace. Um, this is a teaching moment for Israel. Fear that God is holy. God is real. God is not one that we can use to serve our own agendas, um, to, to, to consolidate our kingdom. Fear that ignorance of the law of God is no excuse for God's people, that we really need to study and know what God has communicated and given to us. But, but that fear is also met with the principle of grace, that, that our place before God is defined and determined by grace. We can't just use moral efforts to get there. We can't just be saved through works because our sin is too deep, too real, too serious. I mean, Uzzah's instinct to reach out his hand shows that he's minimized his, maybe even rejected his own need for grace, the seriousness of his sin. He thought the dirt on the ground would defile the ark, but my hand will not. The dirt on the ground will defile this ark, but my hand would not. I mean, he's processing into the city as an insider. As I'm as good as a religious person as it gets. I'm part of this processional leading the most important part of the tabernacle into the city of God. I mean, it's wrong to say that he loved God, but just didn't know the rules. Uzzah, his instinct to reach out, his hand shows that he's elevated himself. And the ark of God is no more than mercantile goods being carried on an ark or being carried on a cart. I think we want to defend Uzzah. Um, but what God does is he uses this moment to teach Israel's king, and by extension, all of Israel, what it means to be totally remade by the gospel. God was trying to wake up the king. Maybe God is trying to wake you up from a superstitious belief that if you're good enough, you can overcome God's harshness and find his favor. The ark forces us to reckon with the Bible story, and we, we have to either accept that story as a whole or else have this bifurcated view of God as, as loving, but then what do we do with the cross, or God as fearful and capricious, but then what do we do with the resurrection? The ark forces us to accept the Bible on its own terms. That's the problem of the ark, ladies and gentlemen. But what we have next is the gospel. According to the ark of the Lord, through the ark, God taught David the gospel. If, if even in just a veiled way. David was a man after God's own heart because he let the story of God define his story. I've said that being one after God's own heart, being like God, it really means being like God. There, there, there's only one pathway to that, and that is... I mean, trying really hard to be good, right? Just making sure you're awake. No, it's through grace, God's grace. It's, it's by dwelling with God. Perez Uzzah, meaning the outbreak against Uzzah, was the place that the ark dwelt for several months. And David, at this point, is, is I imagine, pretty angry with himself, um, I mean, he was the supervisor of this project, right? He, he was the one calling the shots. 
leading the procession. Um, he, in effect, he's the one who set up the show. Um, and we get the sense of the situation when we read verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? I mean, that is a probing question because David is coming to see the reality of God's holiness. I mean, God is using this catastrophe to bring David to a place of reckoning. And like in surgery, I mean, things get worse before they get better. And sometimes God uses the things in your life to bring you to these moments, um, to move you from superficial religion to really knowing him. Um, I mean, he wants us to know his law. I mean, I, I imagine this is one of the things that brought David to his knees where he was, quote, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. But he also wants us to know his heart. He wants us to know who he is. We, want, we see God's heart in this passage and what comes next. I mean, after the ark goes to Odeb, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, meaning from Gath. And let's not miss the fact that this is a Philistine. Gath was one of the, the, the Philistine cities where the ark had already gone and caused plagues and death. Um, Israel was, was passing off the ark into Philistine hands again. Um, people may have put it there out of fear or superstition, but God blessed that household anyway because he was using this to teach David. David saw the heart of God and the gospel message through this. God is essentially saying, I do mean for you to dwell with me. That is my intention. I do mean for you to dwell with me. Yes, the ark means I'm holy, but it also means the possibility of fellowship, right? The fact that God has transcended in that, or God has condescended in that way means there is a possibility of fellowship. Now, when they brought the ark into Jerusalem, there was joy, but there was also sacrifice. In verse 13, I feel like we, we get a sense of David's turning, right? When, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, they sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. I mean, though the sacrificial system was only a shadow of the atonement that would come in Christ, it carries with it the gospel truth that our sin is real and that it takes another to, to take our sin. I mean, David starts to get it. Before he does anything, he makes a burnt offering. In those days, in the, in the tabernacle, you, you had to put your hands on the offering to identify with it. You're, in effect, saying, I should be utterly destroyed, but another has come in my place that will be slain for me. Uh, the, the only way to come into the presence of God is through this sacrificial system in, the, in this time. Grace pervades this story, and God, God used it to teach Israel's king David to trust not in songs, not in good intentions, not in processions, but to trust that God had very good reasons to make the rules he made. And though I won't say very much about the interaction David has with Michal, there, there's one uh, noteworthy thing that I'm going to point out from it. I mean, sometimes we worry about the way that other people see us as Christians. Um, but isn't it strange that it's not the image driven among us that are held in esteem. It's the people that are, are caught up in pleasing God. It's those that, that do live their lives as people after God's own heart that are held in the highest esteem. I, David essentially rebuked Mikal's image driven theory of politics with something more God-centered. Um, he wasn't dancing and rejoicing in his priestly rather than kingly attire. 
to be seen and admired and esteemed, he says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. His, his worshipful abandon actually, actually helps the people know that it is a joy to be in the presence of God, right? David has a joy that makes him forget himself. And this is the gospel according to the ark. That it is possible to find a joy that makes you forget yourself when we come before God. I mean, much can be said about Michal's childlessness, but let's not forget that God has already rejected Saul's line. The fact that she didn't bear a future king of Israel was already determined before this day. And God chose a king already, one who would be born from a place of shame rather than a place of honor. Solomon's mother was not Michal. Solomon's mother was Bathsheba an offspring of his adulterous marriage. You see grace, grace, grace pervading this story. As I conclude, let me reiterate that the sin of Uzzah is the failure to see God and take God as he is, holy, a holy God. Sin and, and holiness cannot coexist, like oil and water, one, one, or maybe an, another illustration of something that consumes another thing. I mean, awareness and ignorance, right? Mass and space, or fire and water, or a base and an acid. I mean, they, these are things that cannot mutually coexist. The natural consequence when a sinful person encounters the holy God is for the, the less potent of the two to be consumed, utterly consumed. But we see the gospel through this story as a, as a story of grace and God's desire to fellowship with us, that same grace that, de that, that really defines and pervades David's life. In every other religion of the world, the, the thing that keeps you from God is your failure. In Christianity, the only thing that keeps you from God is unwillingness to admit our failure. God doesn't simply reject those who fail. God, God rejects those who fail and then don't turn to him to find the forgiveness that is there. To be a person after God's own heart, to truly become like God, we need to fellowship with God. We have to be with God. I mean, the thing about confession every week is, is, is that God uses it to refocus our vision. We start thinking about ourselves, our sin, what we've done wrong and failed to do, and, and, and God changes the direction of our focus to him, I mean, to Christ's work, to his holiness, who he is. Confession is almost a psychological practice of reminding ourselves that we're forgiven, that we're united with Christ, and that it is safe to dwell with God. I mean, that we can be self-forgetful, like David, worshiping in reckless abandon, as he conforms us, as God conforms us to his image. I mean, that's the lesson of the ark. That God uses this to make us into a people after his own heart. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this passage. Um, it is hard to see judgment in Scripture. It is hard to see um, 
reference to a system that we, we do not, uh, that, that is further from our daily life than it was to the first readers of this passage. Um, but I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the, the preservation of truth in your word, that we are invited to, to encounter you and accept you on your own terms, as you really are. Um, I pray that you would help us to, to, to see you through the ark. Um, and I pray that we would accept the call to, to forget ourselves in worship um, as we turn to you and become more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.